Hi, this is Heidi Grant Halverson, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tanvir Nasir welcoming you to a brand new episode of my show, Leadership Biz Cafe. It's been quite some time since I last sat down in front of the mic to record one of these shows, but now that my first leadership book has been out for over a year and is doing very well, it's great to be able to return to the interviewer's chair to talk with some of today's top experts and practitioners who can help us to understand how we can succeed at leadership by bringing out the best in those we lead. To that end, I'm delighted to welcome my next guest to my show, Dr. Heidi Grant Halverson. Heidi is a social psychologist whose research and writings focus on the science of motivation. She is also the associate director of the Motivation Science Center at Columbia Business School, as well as a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, the Wall Street Journal, and Psychology Today. And for regular readers of my leadership blog on my website, you may also recognize her from some of the guest contributions she'd made to my blog as well. Now for today's show, the focus of our discussion will be on her latest book, No One Understands You and What to Do About It. So hi, Heidi. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Heidi, I've been a big fan of your writings that range from looking into what it takes for us to successfully achieve our goals to understanding the different ways that people view situations and what motivates them to keep pressing ahead. And that's what drew me to your latest book, No One Understands You and What to Do About It, where you start off by making the point that all of us are not as easy to read or understand as we might like to think, that oftentimes our actions or words or behaviors are not as self-explanatory as we think they are. Now, for those of us who like to think that, you know, we're dark and mysterious, I'm sure that's good to hear, <laughs> right? But right. if you're a leader, this is obviously something that has to be a big concern because we don't have as much time as we'd like to have had to have those conversations with our employees to help them understand where it is we're heading with these choices and decisions that we're making every day. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that we're not as easy to understand, that we're not that open book that we like to think we are because we're being transparent or we're being genuine about who we are, which is that that's what we're being told we have to be as leaders in today's organizations. Knowing this has to be quite disconcerting. So, But the question is, why is that? Why aren't we that open book? Why aren't we more easily understood by those around us? I mean, why hasn't the past couple of millennia of social evolution made it easier for us to figure each other out better? Uh, you know, it is a, it's a really good question. Um, and I think that, that the, the answer, in a way, has to do with the way our perception has evolved. And um, it, the reality is sort of first and foremost that we're just a lot harder to understand than we think we are. Um, so, so we tend to believe, it's, psychologists call this the illusion of transparency. The, the idea is that we tend to believe because we have access to what we're thinking and feeling and what our intentions are, that those things are obvious to others. Um, and, and they're just really not. I mean, it, it, even down to things like facial expressions, uh, your facial expressions tell much less about what you're thinking and feeling than we tend to assume they do. Um, so, you know, for, besides, I mean, there's some very, there's some very clear exceptions to that. If someone is having one of the sort of the major emotions like disgust or surprise or, or, or strong fear, you can read that pretty easily in another person's face. But when, when 
you know, we're going about our everyday kind of feelings and emotions. The the way you look when you're, you know, a little bit offended by what I just said looks an awful lot like the way you look when you're like quite offended by what I just said or not at all offended by what I just said. So so we we can tell really we're not giving off nearly as many cues to other people about what's going on inside, what's going on in our minds than than we think we are. Um and that's really the challenge. Now, why why haven't we, why aren't we better at this? I mean, some people are. Some people are a, a little bit better at understanding how they're coming across to others and uh, at at being able to uh, think kind of strategically about that intuitively. Um, they're they're a little bit more tuned in. But for the average person, um, we're being misunderstood quite a bit. Um, and and then what's really troublesome is actually that we often don't realize it. Um, it, it's, it's not even for every time, you know, that you came across in a way you didn't intend to, uh, with a colleague or with an employee or with a client, um, for every one of those times, there's probably another 10 where you thought you actually did come across the way you intended to and didn't. Um, so it's a huge problem. It's at the, it's at the root of miscommunication. It is, uh, it, it has everything to do with our ability to be persuasive to other people, um, to lead effectively, you know, we need to understand how we're coming across. And and it's very, very, it's just a very, very challenging problem because you have all the information and they don't, they have to guess. And the guesses they make are, uh, are inaccurate. Um, now, the good news is that when other people are perceiving you, they're going to make mistakes, but the mistakes they make are predictable. So that's sort of the you know the, the the silver lining here is that even though people are often wrong about you, they misunderstand your intentions, they misunderstand what you mean um, when you say something or what your behavior really is is telling them. They may misunderstand that, but they misunderstand it in very predictable ways, and that's really where um, where the research on perception that psychologists have been doing for 50 years becomes really handy because we can then start to look at, okay, what are the kinds of mistakes that people typically make? And what, if any, signals can we send very deliberately that are easier to read? You can kind of think of it like um, that the perceiver's job really is to detect the signal you're sending in a bunch of noise. And you want to just make that signal as clear as possible to increase the chances they actually will detect it amidst all that noise, that they will interpret your actions correctly. They'll interpret often your intentions correctly, which is really the key thing. You know, what did you intend to do um, with those actions? And and so so that's where, you know, we can actually give people some advice, right, about, about well, you know, if you do X, you re- it is reliably considered something that, you know, is a, a sign of friendship, of warmth to another person. If you do Y, this is reliably perceived as something that's sort of cold and distancing to other people. And, uh, and making that kind of thing explicit helps give people some guidance about what they need to do more of and what they need to do less of in interactions with other people. You know, I think the, 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 the answer to sort of how, why we haven't gotten better at this is really that, um, that in, in part the world has just become so much more complicated. So we have, we have basically hunter gatherer brains. Our, our brains haven't changed much, um, since we were hunter gatherers, even though the world around us has, and the complexity of the kinds of thoughts and feelings and actions we're engaged in has, has changed a great deal, but our brains really haven't. So we're very good as perceivers, um, at figuring out whether or not, um, 
someone has good intentions toward us, but we're it, it, beyond that. It's sort of we're, we can be remarkably off when it comes to understanding one another's intentions because the world has just gotten so complicated. Our brains really haven't evolved to keep up with that perceptual complexity. Right. And actually, that's the other half of the equation, this problem of, of not really understanding people is that we're not actually very good at understanding others as well, or oh, others to understand who we absolutely. are. And and as you point out in the book, this has to do with how our brain functions. Like you said, the hunter-gather thing, where it's something that I share in some of my talks, where the fact that is that our brain is actually quite lazy and wanting to take those shortcuts absolutely. in order to reduce its cognitive load. And one of these shortcuts that our brain likes to use, and we're seeing it a lot in the last two, few weeks here, is assumptions, right? Where most of us are familiar with the danger of making assumptions of how we view a group or a subset of a population or a particular part of the world. And yet we can't help it because our brain still uses them often without our, our awareness. Because as you point out, we don't actually pay attention that much to what people are saying as much as or what they're doing as we think we do. Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. We're not, we're not, we are not, um, the brain, the brain is a, is a cognitive miser. It's a, it's, it's an energy saver. And in fairness, it's because there is actually way too much to pay attention to for us to think deeply about everything. So in general, we take a lot of shortcuts, as you said, and one of the areas in which we take shortcuts is in how we perceive other people. And we use stereotypes uh, because our brains are natural categorizers, right? It, it, they, if, you, if you walk into a room and you've, you, know, you see a chair, even if you've never seen that particular chair before, you know that it's for sitting and not for eating or climbing because you recognize it as a member of the category chair. Your brain does that instantly. And we use those same processes to understand people. So our first uh, our first understanding of someone is often based on the categories that to which they belong, um, and and what we don't realize is that those categories, even ones, even when we don't believe it, I mean that's one of the the, the really shocking things that it, you can you can be influenced by stereotypes about groups that you don't actually believe are accurate. All you have to do is know the stereotype to be influenced by it. So those things seep into our thinking, and uh, if we're not engaged very deliberately in careful thinking about another person and trying to understand them, then a lot of times those shortcuts are what make up our perception of that person. Um, and, and so, and, and, and we're all doing it. I mean, again, you can get really angry about that and you can say, well, it's not fair. People should be working harder to understand me. But the reality is you do it too. <laughs> you know, we, we all do it because brains do it. And if you, if you leave it up to, uh, you know, as unfair as it may seem at times, I think if you just leave it up to other people to get you and assume that that's, uh, that they should put in that effort and they should do that work, two things are wrong with that. You know, one is that you may not be giving them a lot of information to go on. So, so in fairness, you're not, you're not giving them much evidence upon which to be, have a more accurate assessment of you. And two, um, it's just not going to happen. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen that people are suddenly, you know, going to spend, everyone who you encounter is going to spend tons of their time and energy trying to be accurate about you. You need to make it easier for them. Um, and, and if you participate in that process and you get better about sending clear signals about yourself, then you're going to make it so that even if they don't work very hard to understand you, they're still going to basically get the right impression. Um, and that's really what I, the, what motivated the book for me is not 
trying to say, oh, so the answer is we should all spend tons of time thinking very, very deeply about every single person we encounter, because that's just not very practical. But what you can do is spend a little bit of time thinking a little bit more strategically about how you come across to other people and make it easier for them to get you. That will actually work. And you know, it's interesting because you mentioned just now how one of the things that drives our assumptions are, is stereotyping, which is something we're all familiar with. But there was two other mechanisms that you point out that research has shown that drives those assumptions. And that was the false consensus effect and right. the false uniqueness effect, where the false consensus effect is one where we think that others think and feel the way that I think and feel. Mm -hmm. And false uniqueness being more about that we tend to think of our own morality or values as being better than those around us. Right. So when I was reading your book, I was actually looking at interactions on social media and all the numerous incidences that happen here in North America and around the world where, you know, maybe there's a public persona that makes some gaffe and people suddenly rail against them for expressing their disappointment. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at what people were sharing online, and I, I couldn't help but notice in, in reading about these two effects of the false consensus and the false uniqueness. How these reactions seem to focus more on how this person's actions betrayed our collective perception of who we thought this person was, as right. well at the same time elevating our view of ourselves in the sense that we would never commit the same behavior or say the same thing. And as such, we have that compensatory need to publicly vocalize our disgust or disappointment in order to reinforce the perception or narrative we have about ourselves. Absolutely. And it does it, you know, and as you said, there's a lot of things going on, they're all kind of leading to the same place that, that we, um, we are a little bit uh, two dimensional in our thinking about others, um, often. So you know, we're, we're, there's a tendency, again, it's really a brain based tendency, it's not because we're bad people. But um, the brain is quite likely to treat others um, with a kind of a wide brush, you know, so you're, you're, uh, you're all bad, you know, or you're fantastic. <laughs> and, 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 and that, and it's very much a function of whether or not you think this person is sort of in your group or not. So we are uh, very much prone to, to sort of taking that negative broad brush view of people who seem different than we are. Um, and, and much more generous with people who feel, who we feel are like on our side or on our team. Because in a way, you know, the brain acts very interesting. The brain actually treats people who it categorizes as in group for you, sort of as part of my team. Um, whether that team is, you know, at the level of like, you know, the, the family or your team at work or even like the country to which you belong or the race or gender to which you belong. So teams can have various sizes, but, but your brain treats people it categorizes as on my team. Uh, and, and in much the same way it treats information about you yourself. So it actually uses the same networks in the brain to process information about those people as it, as you use to process information about yourself. We use it actually different. Uh, network to process information about people who are outside the team. And we uh, pay a lot less attention to the details, right, to the nuances that may have explained what, yes, on the surface may look like a bad behavior, but and, and certainly isn't a behavior that, you know, you would say, oh, that was a good thing that that person did. But there's often a lot of nuance to why a person did what they did, uh, a lot of context. Um, and the brain doesn't necessarily automatically take into account context. Um, and it's unfortunately one of the things that, that uh, the brain does a lot of things very automatically, right? It stereotypes automatically, it takes shortcuts automatically, it uh, uses assumptions like false consensus and false uniqueness automatically. Um, 
it, it uses, a, it, it, it's affected by what you're thinking and feeling right now automatically. So your current mood, your current thoughts and feelings influence how you perceive others. And all of that is automatic and, eff- and, and relatively effortless for the brain. The one thing that takes a lot of brain energy is taking context into account, taking the situation under which a person's actions occurred um, into account, thinking about their what they were, what their thoughts were, what their feelings were, you know, what the reasons were for the things they did. That all takes actually a lot of effort. And the, in the book, I call that so. There's sort of like phase one processing, which is all the stuff that happens automatically, and then phase two processing, which is the part that takes some mental energy and effort to engage in. And phase one happens automatically all the time for everyone, and phase two only happens when we are both uh, motivated to be accurate and also uh, have the time and energy to be accurate. I mean, if you're actually just really mentally busy, um, you have a hard time taking situations into account uh, for other people. So, so it's not, you know, Bob was rude this morning because, uh, you know, well, he was running late for work and I know a lot of things are going on in his personal life that are really stressful for him. And I know that he's really worried about this upcoming project. And so that was why he was kind of cranky this morning. No, it just becomes Bob is a jerk. <laughs> and, yeah. and all that situation goes out the window. And, and we do that, like I said, partly because um, we're not always motivated to do all that extra thinking about Bob. But sometimes it's actually just we're really busy. So if you've got a lot of things going on that you're preoccupied with, you're going to just think Bob is a jerk and not think about all that other stuff because you just don't even have the mental bandwidth to engage in that. Um, so, I mean, you think about all this stuff and you really start to get a sense of why, why it's so easy for misunderstandings to happen or for people to get the wrong idea about you. Because it's the process of perception is so complicated and there's just so many things that can get in the way of arriving at the right answer about someone else. I definitely want us to go into that two phases of perception, but I do want to bring up um, one of the things that, about, that you discussed in your book about the nature of stereotyping and how it impacts how we see and understand people. Because you bring up some fascinating studies that show that when it comes to how our brain uses stereotypes, the relationship between creativity and effective leadership is inversely correlated, where <laughs> the more we see someone as being creative, the less we see them as being an effective leader, even though we keep hearing how there's this growing need for creativity within the leadership realm. So, right. Heidi, could you explain why there's this disconnect between what we know is needed to help our organizations adapt and evolve, and this bias that exists within our brains that has us defaulting to hiring leaders who lack a creative edge because we think they'll be more effective? You know, it's a it's a really interesting thing, and again, it, it, as you said, it's a, it completely comes down to these ideas that stereotypes are basically categories, and so you have in your head this um, an idea, and it, and it, and these ideas come from basically the culture around us, right? We learn them, uh, you know, we sort of absorb them osmotically over the course of our lives. You know, what is um, you know what are women and men like? for example, like what's the difference between a man and a woman, you know, generally speaking, those are stereotypes that we absorb. Uh, what are old people like compared to younger people? You know, how are they different? Those are stereotypes we absorb. And we also absorb even more narrow stereotypes, like what is a doctor like? Um, what is a school teacher like? What is a librarian like? And, and, even, and even sort of things like, you know, what is a creative person like? Um, when you talk about creatives, 
you know, what is the idea that pops into your head? Or what is the stereotype of a creative? And, and what is the stereotype of a leader? You know, what is a, a leader stereotypically like? And so for most people, when you, I mean, you can, and there's studies on this, when you ask them to sort of list the traits of a creative and the traits of a leader, the problem is that there are in the stereotypes of creatives and leaders, some traits that contradict each other. Again, now this is in the stereotype, not in an actual person, right? But just in the stereotype themselves. So we tend to think of in the stereotype of a creative as someone who is, you know, innovative and a risk taker um, and thinks outside the box, but is also maybe not particularly responsible, not particularly well organized, right? I mean, just think of sort of like the, 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 the stereotype of the artist, you know, not somebody who maybe necessarily remembers to pay their bills on time um, because they're so preoccupied with their creative work, right? Now you think about the stereotype of a leader, and in the in the stereotype of a leader, when we think of someone who's a great leader, you're definitely going to see those qualities like being serious minded and, and organized and responsible as being a big part of that. So what's happening is that on a, at the level of a, your unconscious brain, when you encounter someone that you are interviewing for a leadership role and you are seeing all this evidence of their creativity at an unconscious level in your mind. You're, you're, there are things that are uh, that are kind of colliding, right? Which is all of the stuff that goes with stereotypes, the, the stereotype of creativity, right? So you're actually thinking in, in your mind, thoughts are being generated about like being sort of, you know, not particularly responsible, not particularly organized, you know, being a free spirit. And those thoughts are seeping into your perception of this person, whether or not they're true, right? So again, simply, you know, thinking about them as a creative, is, is tainting your impression of them with qualities that they may not possess. I know plenty of creative people who are very well organized and very responsible, but it's coloring your perception. So what the studies show is that you take two people who are, who you basically give them this essentially similar resumes, um, and they, and same, the same essential qualities, but you make one of them, you say, describe them as very creative, and the other one is not creative. And people will, choose the not creative one for the leadership position. Because again, on an unconscious level, they're being affected by the this idea that creatives aren't responsible. Okay, and, and that they and they're not going to be well organized, and they're just not gonna be someone you can count on. Now, it's interesting, you can you can reverse this effect by basically bringing to people's minds a counterexample that's very powerful. So, uh, so you can mention someone like a, a Sir Richard Branson, you know, someone who is thought of as a creative person who is also basically like a, a, what are sometimes called the, the charismatic leaders, right? The people that were or like a, a Steve Jobs, somebody who was known for being creative as well as also for being, you know, a responsible, uh, organized, effective leader. And if you if you actually remind people about the existence of, of highly effective creative leaders before you have them engage in this task, then they'll actually give the creative person the job. But it's almost like we need that, that active counterexample in our minds to counteract what's happening at an unconscious level normally. Um, and again, it's, it's just amazing to people because if you ask them afterwards why they picked the person who wasn't creative, it's not like they're going to say, well, it, they have no idea they were influenced uh, by these unconscious stereotypes in their minds. They have no idea that it was because just thinking creative made them think, oh, this person really can't be counted on. 
Um, and, 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 you know, stereotypes do evolve. So it may be that, you know, over time, people will no longer associate creatives with that sort of image of, you know, the, the painter who works in the studio and forgets to pay their bills and, and, you know, only cares for their art. Um, because the nature of being a creative has changed so much in, in the modern workplace. So that stereotype may die out over time, but while it still exists, it definitely undermines uh, you know, the ability of creative people to rise within an organization. And it, 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 as you said, there's a tremendous irony in that because we are constantly calling for more creativity and more innovation in organizations. And yet, unconsciously, we are biased against the very people uh, that are capable of creating that at the highest levels in an organization. And, you know, I think this reflects something you mentioned earlier when you talked about how one of the challenges, and it's ironic that it's one of the challenges we our brain has, is bringing in context to understanding a situation or person. Because that's often mm-hmm. what we hear so much where people talk about a problem or a situation saying, oh, we have to understand the context of which this was being said or done and so forth. But it's not our brain's default because, again, going back to something you mentioned earlier, we tend to observe and understand things through two phases. The first one being that phase one and the second one being phase two. So when you're talking about these two phases that we're experiencing, that this is how we might misread or misunderstand a person, could you explain what these two phases of perception are and how they serve to shape our understanding about others in the world around us? Because this is something that's important, I think, for leaders to understand, to make sure that we are, in fact, communicating in a way that's reflective of what it is we want to impart to those we lead. Because at a lot of times, that context that we're so relying on people to use to understand our communications is not necessarily what's going along with what people are taking as our message. Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, bottom line, if people need the context to understand your intentions or, you know, what you meant or what you were trying to do, you're in trouble. Um, because, uh, and if, and if you, and you, especially if you sort of leave it to them to figure out that context, right. Uh, then you're in a lot of trouble, right? Yeah. Because it's really not something that, that most perceivers will engage in, um, much, most of the time. So as you said, there's two phases for people that have maybe read or thought about reading. It's a really big book. Um, the book thinking fast and slow by, uh, Daniel Kahneman, you can think of phase one and phase two as really mapping on exactly to, to those two systems he talks about, right? There's the fast thinking system and the slow thinking system, the fast thinking phase one, um, of perception happens automatically without effort. Um, and, and totally unconsciously. And it is literally what your brain does in those first moments of, uh, interacting with someone for the first time, or, or, or it, it's the first pass your brain takes at understanding another person's behavior, um, or understanding what it was they meant by what they said to you. Um, and, and, you know, that's the other thing that's really important. There's always interpretation. You know, it's even a simple, a simple phrase like, hi, how you doing? You might think it's like, oh, yeah, hi, how you doing? That's that's unambiguous. Well, it's actually not because, you know, how how did you say it? Right. Was it? Oh, hi, how you doing? Or was it? Hi, how you doing? Right. What was the tone? How are you looking at the person? What was the expression on your face? All of those things will go into how that person understands what you meant by hi, how you doing? Like, was it genuine? Were you actually happy to see them? Or maybe did you look a little distracted? And if you looked a little distracted, does that mean you weren't really, in fact, happy to see them? Or were you thinking about them? I mean, we don't realize that there's all this complexity, even to the simplest things we say to one another. So, 
So the, the, the phase one is really your brain's first pass at understanding what it was you meant or what it was you, were, you said or what your behavior means. And as we talked about, it's really that first pass is uh, the interpretation there is based on um, assumptions. Um, it's based on shortcuts. It's based on stereotypes. It's based on your past experience with that person. And, and that's not a bad thing, really, because um, my past experience with you should help me to understand uh, what, you know, how to interpret what you're doing now, right? So if, if you, for example, made a joke and it was a little bit in poor taste, let's say, um, but I, I know you and I know that you're a funny person and that you're really a good-hearted person, my, my first interpretation is likely to be, well, you were just trying to be funny. You know, there was no harm meant. Um, and that's a good thing, right? You know, we should use our past experience with people to understand them. The problem, though, is that what if your past experience with that person isn't actually accurate in the sense that you misinterpreted them the first time? This is one of the reasons why first impressions, I mean, believe me, I would love, love, love to be the person who could, you know, come on your show and say, you know, well, we spend so much time talking about the importance of first impressions. It's not really that big a deal, right? I'd love to take people off the hook for that, but it's actually a bigger deal than you think because first impressions do color every interaction you have with someone and really at the level of the brain. Your brain will use your past experience to understand you now and uh, and if that past experience was inaccurate, right? Like, so you just happen to, to behave in a way that really wasn't indicative of, you know, what you're like normally, um, that you're kind of in trouble because it's going to continue to color every interaction you have afterwards. So, so past experience, assumptions, stereotypes, um, all of those things that are sort of quick rules that the brain can use to understand you, um, that's what happens in phase one. Now, phase two is when the brain considers, uh, that phase, the phase one conclusion might be wrong, right? So if the phase one conclusion was Bob is Bob was cranky, so he's a jerk, then the phase two is where your brain would say, well, hang on, you know, maybe Bob's not a jerk. I mean, maybe really it's that, you know, he's got this going on and there's this other thing happening and, you know, it's a really hot day and he hasn't eaten yet and maybe, right? So it's when you start thinking about all these reasons these circumstances that might be contributing to Bob's behavior. Um, and, 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 and that's when you get really the brain, you know, you get the most accurate sense of another person when you engage in that very important second step. The problem is, like I said, phase two is effortful and requires mental bandwidth. And so it, because of those, those two things, it is only something we engage in when we are actually care about being accurate about another person, um, which we don't always, frankly, care that much about being accurate. Sometimes the gist of another person seems just fine. Um, and also, like I said, you know, we're, the busyness is a huge problem. Um, when people are mentally busy, they miss important details about one another. And they miss, in particular, important details about the context. So if you are relying as a leader on people to understand that the reason you're doing what you're doing is because of the situation that you're in, um, you need to spell that out for people. And often, you know, uh, there's a, there's a phrase I like to use my husband, um, who's, um, who, who, who likes to, to, you know, not do, he's, he's a relatively like not effusive, you know, person and often sort of says things with a lot of brevity. And I say, you know, I'll say, well, you know, do you mean X, Y, and Z? And he'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, then why didn't you say that? 
And he'll say, well, it goes without saying. And really the, the, the expression, it goes without saying, should be just destroyed because <laughs> nothing goes without saying, not if you really want to be understood. So I always say, no, it goes with saying. Uh, and that's really sort of the rule that I'm trying to introduce. Part of what I'm trying to teach people in the book is that if it's important that someone understands something, you have to say it. You cannot just say, I can, oh, I assume he understands, or I'm sure that he knows, or it should be obvious. All of that might be true, but it's probably not. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably not the case that they understood. What about the situation is important here? You really need to take that extra time to, uh, to say everything that's important to be said and everything that people need. Give them that information that they need. Don't make it so hard for them to figure you out because they're just not going to. They're not going to put in that effort. You, ha you have to make it easier for people. And so we have to be more thoughtful communicators, um, particularly around the reasons for the things we do. Um, because reasons are, are, are very, very difficult for people to, to, to figure out um, in most situations. And we need to be much more, you know, the rule of thumb needs to be say more, not less. Um, and for a lot of people, that requires really developing a new habit, like a new way of communicating. But it's a really, really important one. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the point you're bringing up here about the challenge we have in getting to that second phase of perception, and as your husband said, you know, like, well, it's, uh, it goes without saying, bears repeating here because when we consider the current workplace environment where leaders not only face these increasing demands on their time and attention, not to mention those increasing distractions found in our work environment, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it becomes easier for us to preach how problematic it can be for leaders to really get into that phase two to make sure that they are, in fact, understanding the realities of those they lead face. Not to mention the fact that you also point out in your book that even our circadian rhythms that make one person a so-called morning person, another one a night owl, mm -hmm. have a dramatic impact on when during the day we're most able to tap into that phase two of our perception. Yeah, I mean, really anything that affects your mental energy will affect your skills at perception because it is such an energy intense activity in the brain. Like I said, it doesn't feel like it. And that and that's that's really part of the problem. We feel like we just see what there is. We feel like we just see people the way they are. And like there's sort of this one-to-one -one relationship, right, between what I see and what is actually there. And we don't realize that perception is incredibly energy consuming in the brain. It's so complicated. It's one of the most complicated things we do is understanding other people. And so anything that impacts your mental energy is going to impair, for the, for the worse, is going to impair your ability to perceive other people accurately. And so that includes, you know, being very busy, being very stressed, and even the time of day. You know, if you're a morning person, your perceptions of other people are going to be much more accurate in the morning than they are in the evening when you're just sort of burnt out. I mean, it, it really is how much mental energy do you have to put into this very challenging task of perceiving other people? And on top of it, I'd say uh, the other challenge is from the per perception, uh, you know, so there's in the book, I talk about things both from the vantage point of, um, you know, how do you as a leader make sure you're coming across effectively to other people. But I'll tell you, the m harder challenge is actually how you as a leader can make sure you're seeing other people correctly. Because uh, the, there's a power plays a really interesting role in perception. What we know is that the relatively powerful, and, and by the way, this is something that happens, like put someone in a position of power and you can watch these changes happen in the brain. So it's not 
it's, it's not something you're born with. It's just something power actually literally does to the brain. People in who are relatively powerless, right? So, so compared to someone else. So, um, say, you know, a, a direct report to their boss. When people are in a relatively a position of lower power, they pay more attention to the person who is, and that just makes sense, right? They pay more attention to the person who is more powerful because that person can control their outcomes. So they are actually a little bit more likely to do some phase two processing of what the boss is doing because they really actually want to try to understand the boss, right? I mean, it's important to be able to understand them so you can predict them, so you can know what it is they want from you. Again, it's you're not always going to do that, but you're a little bit more likely to do that. The powerful people, on the other hand, are much are even less likely to go into phase two when trying to understand someone who's relatively less powerful. Um, so, so in fact, what we know from a ton of research is that when a person is in a position of relative power, they're even more likely to rely on stereotypes, to rely on assumptions, and to just not really see the people that work for them as, as unique individuals, but to sort of be content to just get the gist, right, of, what's, of what you're like. And again, super problematic, right? Because you're, you're, there's a real possibility there. You're missing what makes that person unique, what their unique gifts might be, their unique talents and abilities, their unique contributions that they can make. You're going to communicate with them much less effectively because you're really not understanding them as an individual. You're just sort of kind of understanding them in broad strokes. Um, and again, we know this is, again, it's not conscious and it's certainly not because, you know, power, you know, powerful people are evil or something. It really is just an effect on the brain that, that when your brain is, is sort of unconsciously making that calculation of where do I spend my time and energy, when you have more power and more responsibility, your brain naturally devotes its time and energy to the goals you're trying to reach. And, and it takes that time and energy away from things like the people that work for you. Um, and which is not like a happy story, <laughs> but but it is a real sort of cautionary tale, right? It is, it's something to know. My brain, as a person who's in a position of power relative to other people, my brain is maybe not automatically doing as much of the work I want it to do to really pay attention to these people. So I have to actually consciously try to spend more time understanding the people that work for me. I have to consciously make a point of asking questions and finding out more because I know that power does this potentially, um, quite likely actually, <laughs> to, to my brain. Um, and, and that is something I think that's an, just as important for leaders as the, take, as the message, you know, you need to little, work a little harder to be understood, is the message you need to work a little harder to understand. Um, because it's, it's something that your brain is going to not do on its own. It needs a little bit of conscious direction to get that done. So, Heidi, given this dynamic that power creates in our brain and how it alters the way we understand and interpret situations, when I read that, actually, there was a question that came to mind. I'm sure it's on the mind of our listeners as well. And that is, given that case of the impact power has on us, and if it's really hard for us then to get into that phase two perception to ensure that we are, in fact, reading a person or situation correctly, that we're not being misled by our biases or our assumptions or by how our brain works within that phase one of perception and the dynamics that power brings to that interaction. How can we make sure that we, when we're interacting with someone, 
that mm-hmm. we are, we're getting into that phase two perception so that we can, in fact, have a better understanding about them. In other words, when leaders do have those conversations with their employees, mm-hmm. whether that's in a formal meeting setting or an informal impromptu conversation as they're walking through the organization's facility, how can they make sure that what they're trying to communicate or impart to their employees and what they're hearing from their employees is, in fact, what's going on and they're actually relaying the message and the idea that they really want to impart because I can tell you there are many leaders who I've spoke to who do struggle with this because they see that disconnect where what they're trying to create and what their employees say is what's really going on in the organization is not really in sync or in parallel. And I think a lot of it's because of those biases and that power dynamic coming to play in, in terms of how which phase of perception we're in when we're in those conversations. I think the, it is definitely a, a challenge, and I think it's a, it's a very common one. I think that the answer lies in, in being, again, very deliberate. So first of all, um, you know, knowing it's, it's sort of one of those classics. Knowing you have a problem is the first step to a solution, right? So, so understanding that, um, that there is this real danger um, around misperception both, and from both sides. Um, creates then some energy toward solving the problem, right? It, it, you know, the, the first part of the problem for, for, for much of this is really, you know, I think half of my goal in writing the book was really getting to people under, to understand that there is a problem. Because again, we don't, we often don't even realize we're not, un, both not understanding other people and being misunderstood ourselves. So first we need to kind of get, okay, there's a problem. And, and beyond that then, I think the answer is, in asking a lot more questions and in inviting more questions. And both of those are really important for leaders. So first, um, doing a lot less talking. <laughs> and I mean, so you have to, you have to make sure that you say you're very clear and give a lot of detail about the things that you, you want to, to say that you want to get across. But then to allow more time for quest for that for for asking questions of the person who works for you so that you and, and really listening to the answers. I mean really I think devoting a little bit more time to to literally getting to know the people that work for you and their thought processes and and leaving a lot of room for them to to give you answers that would give you windows into that is important. The other thing that's really important that leaders consistently do not do enough of because they don't know they need to do it is inviting questions, right? So a typical, you know, boss who's in a room with their employee um, will tell them, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And here, you know, and I, and I think we need to do, or I think we need to do X, Y, and Z. And then, and the other person says, okay, great. That's what we'll do. And they leave the room and, and you don't even realize that there was a miscommunication. You don't even realize necessarily that your direct report doesn't really understand what you meant um, doesn't understand why they're supposed to do this, is maybe misinterpreting why they're supposed to do this, because there was no room in that conversation. There was no invitation to ask questions. And there are sort of social norms that people adhere to without even necessarily being conscious of it. Most direct reports don't feel comfortable saying something thing, saying something like, I, I really don't understand what you mean. Or, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about why we're doing this. Um, those feel like um, either they will feel sort of stupid for asking the question or they, they feel like it might come across as confrontational. Um, and both of those things are obviously bad to do in front of your boss, right? So they don't ask questions. And so the, the leader walks away feeling like they were understood and everything is clear because nobody asked a question. 
And the indirect report walks away with lots of questions, but not feeling comfortable enough to ask them, and sometimes then draws the wrong conclusion because they didn't feel comfortable enough to ask. So super important for leaders in their one-on-one -on -one conversations or their team conversations to take to set aside time to invite questions and to invite them in a way that's really positive, you know, in a way that, that encourages people to ask them to say things like, you know, I, I know that I just said a lot and I'm sure I didn't say half of it very clearly. So I'm, I'm sure I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I'm sure it's not clear what I mean. So, so, you know, please do ask me some questions because this has to be confusing and complicated for you. Um, you know, I, you know, to invite that, to make it okay for people to say, yeah, actually, now that you mentioned it, I, I really don't understand what you meant by that second thing that you said. Um, and all of a sudden you realize that there are all these questions there that people would have loved to ask, but they just didn't feel like they could. So, so I would say that's one of the single most powerful things leaders can do is not only invite questions, it's not, it's not, by the way, as simple as just at the end of the conversation saying, so do you have any questions? Because, you know, then people say no. <laughs> you really have to make it okay. You have to say like, you must have some questions because I'm sure, you know, I'm sure not everything I said was clear or, you know, I'm sure, you know, I didn't explain that as well as I'd like to. So, you know, uh, you know, is there anything you would like to ask? You know, I'm happy to answer. Um, make it really okay for them, really encourage it. And you clear up a tremendous number of miscommunications before they have the potential to do real damage. Right. Those are some great points, uh, Heidi. And really, I think it really helps people to understand how we can, in fact, despite those increasing demands that we are all facing in our workplace, how we can be a little bit more present, a little bit more attentive so that we're not falling susceptible to those biases and those assumptions that, well, this is what we've seen from them in the past. So we're just looking for confirmation of our perception mm -hmm. of them, but really to see what is the reality really accurate or has there been a change that we need to be paying attention to as we go forward? A absolutely. And I think, you know, when people sometimes have the reaction to this, when we talk, when I talk about it and they say, well, that sounds like it takes a lot of time and I don't have a lot of time. Uh, you know, what I think you have to really take a step back and, and look at the bigger picture, which is, do you have a lot of time to put out all the fires and fix all the things that go wrong because there were miscommunications? No. Right. And how much of our time do we spend doing exactly that? Right. Fixing things that really shouldn't have gone wrong, but there was a miscommunication somewhere down the road and it caused problems. So, you know, I think that by taking a little bit of time to create greater clarity across the board between leaders and, and the people that work with them um, up front to do that little bit of extra work up front saves you tons of time in the scheme of things, because you're not having to go back and fix things and redo things and deal and put out fires that really should have never happened in the first place. So in the long run, getting perception right and helping other people to get their perception of you right saves you time and makes you tremendously more effective. Even if it does take a little bit more of an investment up front of your effort, um, the investment pays off uh, many, many times. Absolutely. And, you know, Heidi, we've been talking so far about the various mechanisms that shape and distort how others see us. And I think it's becoming clear now that, as we said at the start of the conversation, people don't see us the way we see ourselves because right. they're interpreting what we say and do from their own unique vantage point. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, what can we do then now that we understand the, these different phases of perception and the different things that drive those assumptions and, the, you know, the lazy notion of our brain and how it's trying to protect that cognitive load we have on a daily basis mm -hmm. to use? 
what can we do to make sure that people do get the impression or the understanding of us that we want to have? What are the things that we should be going forward, paying more attention to in our conversations with those we lead to ensure that the message and the ideas we want to impart are, in fact, the very things we want to have lingering in the mind's eyes of those we lead? Well, I think there's, there's really a, a number of things you can do. And just to give you a couple, um, I, I think that first and foremost, you have to start with um, a, a little bit better understanding of how you actually are coming across to other people. Um, there's a great question that I encourage people to, to ask um, to, in order to get this information. And to do that, you really have to just get some information, right? I mean, you have to get some data. How, how, how am I coming across to other people? Um, fantastic question to ask. It takes a little bit of courage, but it is a really eye-opening, is to ask someone who's worked with you for a while, um, it, to, to answer the following question. If I didn't know you better, I would think that you were blank. And, and encourage them to, to fill in that blank very honestly. And you find out all kinds of stuff about yourself, right? If I didn't know you better, I'd think that you were arrogant. If I didn't know you better, that I think that you weren't very bright. You know, if I didn't know you better, I think that you were, you know, um, a, a, a little bit lazy. And, you, and then you, and you say to that person, well, wait, why? Like, wh- why would you think that? And they'll tell you. You know, they'll say, well, it's because you do X, Y, and Z. And that, that kind of gives that impression to people. You know, of course, that's not what I think of you. But that, if I didn't know you better, that's what I would think. That if I didn't know you better question um, is really, really helpful for people to get a sense of what, particularly what their initial impression that they give off to another person might be. And, and, and that's a really good starting place, right? Because you need to sort of know, okay, how am I coming across? And, and, and am I coming across in ways consistently that are, are just not accurate, right? That, that aren't true of me. Um, and, and it can be for very um, you know, benign reasons. I, I once got feedback when the very first class I ever taught, um, I was still in graduate school and I was taught a lecture um, in, in an undergraduate psych class, and I was absolutely terrified um, going into it. I absolutely, I, I felt like an imposter. I felt like there's no way I should be teaching, like a you know, a college students. You know, I'm just a first year graduate student, and um, I prepared a ton, but I was absolutely terrified going into it. Um, and uh, because it was a teaching uh, training experience, I, I asked for feedback from all of the students. I get passed out this form for them to fill out. And by and large, I did, you know, fine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, screw anything up too badly when I was teaching. But I was amazed that there were, you know, uh, a group, it came up more than once in the, in the reviews that I had come across as an arrogant know-it-all. And what was funny to me was that, I mean, nothing could have been further from the truth. I, I felt like, you know, I, I knew nothing, right? And I was terrified. I mean, I had never felt less arrogant or know-it-all-y, you know, I think in my life. And so I was marveled at this for a while, like, what the heck was it? I mean, it came up more than once. So, so obviously it was something. And it wasn't until years later, and I, I talk about this, 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 these things in the book as well, that, that um, one of the other major tips I'd give people is that it, you, it's so important to, to have a sense of your um, interpersonal warmth, how, how warm you are coming across to other people. Because it turns out warmth is one of the things that we take, again, at an unconscious level. It's a phase one thing. The perceiver takes as an indication of your good intentions toward them. So we tend to kind of categorize people as either warm or cold. And you're, if you come across as warm, um, then you, you're, you, people think, oh, this is a friend. This person has good intentions toward me. I think one of the things I absolutely failed to do in that 
first class I ever taught was signal warmth at all because I was so I was so terrified, frankly. I mean, I was so preoccupied with just getting the facts out correctly in the class that I didn't do things like smile at people or acknowledge, you know, how how uh, how good their questions were um, or look at people when they were talking to me and, and nod in response to indicate that I was understanding. You know, a lot of the signals of warmth turn out to be sort of physical in nature, right? It's things like smiling when someone smiles at you, um, looking at the person when they're, and we hear all the time, you need to make eye contact with people, but really what matters for warmth is you looking at them when they're talking. Um, and in this day and age, everyone's looking at their phone, you know, or their iPad. And so more and more, we're actually not looking at the person who's speaking and in, in meetings, for example. Um, and that's terrible because it's this, it turns out that's this, an unconscious, clear signal of coldness. Um, and we're doing it all the time and we don't even realize we're doing it. So, so I, here I was, you know, so, trying so hard to kind of appear competent to the class that I completely neglected to send any signals that I was, I was, you know, had good intentions toward them, right. That I was, that I was warm. And, um, and that therefore led to this sort of like, oh, she's an arrogant know-it-all thing. And I think leaders make that mistake all the time. They're so focused on appearing competent that they often forget, um, to send those warmth signals, right? Those signals that basically say, I'm on your side, I have good intentions toward you, I'm listening. Um, it, it, by the way, warmth doesn't have to be like hugging and like talking about feelings all the time. You know, it, it's not that. Um, people can, the, the sense of warmth is conveyed by genuine um, interest in other people. Um, it's conveyed by, uh, by feel, a sense that you're a loyal, principled and fair person. Um, and as I said, it's conveyed in these small gestures of interest in another person, like looking at them, smiling, nodding at the end of sentences when someone else is speaking and affirming other people's ideas um, in a positive way. So so those are a couple of things I would say, you know, sort of first get a sense of of how you're coming across. And then almost everyone can benefit from trying to deliberately up their warmth quotient a little bit. Um, because uh, as we tend to focus on appearing competent, especially in the workplace, um, we tend to focus less on appearing warm. And really, there are a lot of studies now that show that the most effective leaders are ones that appear as both warm and competent. That's the combination that makes people trust you. Um, and trust, as we know, is, is, is an as absolutely necessary and critical ingredient for anyone to lead. So, you know, it's not enough to... And this is the whole thing about perception. It's really not enough to be trustworthy. You have to come across as trustworthy. And, uh, and for that, you need warmth and competence. You know, Heidi, I think this is one of the reasons why I so thoroughly enjoyed your book, because there's just so much wonderful and valuable insights that I think we've only scratched the surface of the notes that I've taken while I was reading your <laughs> book. And there's definitely so much more that we can learn from reading your book. But if there was one key takeaway that you wanted our listeners to leave with today from your book, No One Understands You and What to Do About It, to ensure that they are being better understood by those around them, what would it be? I, I really think it is, uh, to, you know, remember everything goes with saying that, that if there is anything that you feel that is important that another person understands about, uh, about what you're thinking, what your intentions are, why you've done what you've done, if there is anything at all that you think is important for them to know, you have to say it. You have to make it clear. And the, and the onus is on you. I think too often we leave it up to other people 
to do the work of understanding what we mean. And that will always lead to negative consequences for you and for them. You have to do your part and understand that, you know, part of a big part of the responsibility of being understood is on you. And, and if you are, if you're just a little bit more thoughtful and careful, um, and, and deliberate in making sure that you are understood, you will have tremendous benefits from just that little bit of going to just a little bit of extra effort. Um, it, it's incredibly powerful. It's the basis of every relationship. It is the basis of your ability to be persuasive and influential with other people. Sort of step one is always knowing how you are coming across to others. Put a little bit of more time and energy into that and, and the benefits are just in, incredible. That's perfect. A great encapsulation. And I also like the fact that it ties back to something you got from your interactions with your husband. Yeah. Too. So it all ties <laughs> together. Again, Heidi, you know what? It's such a pleasure to have you on my show. I always learn a lot from reading your books and your articles. And I know you've left my listeners with much food for thought on how they are showing up in those daily interactions and, you know, thinking more about how they're really helping people to understand who they really are and what they're all about. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. I am so happy to be on your show. It's been an honor and a, and a, and a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I've been talking with Heidi Grant Halverson about her latest book, No One Understands You and What to Do About It. To learn more about Heidi's book and her work in the field of motivational psychology, visit the webpage for this episode at tavirnasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage or by filling out the contact form at tanvirnasir.com. And if you found my show on Stitcher Radio or iTunes, please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tanvir Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.